This is an ABC podcast. G'day, it's Clint Jasper with you and it's time for a trip around a big country. This week we're gathering around the campfire and joining camp oven cooking enthusiasts who are preparing a feast over hot coals. They're taking part in a camp oven cooking competition as the pastime enjoys a resurgence. We'll meet two young brothers who've started a juicy little business that's benefiting their country community and we'll tee off on the world's longest golf course that's also possibly the roughest. The unusual course along the Nullarbor Plain has unique hazards like wombat holes and crows that steal golf balls and there's not a manicured green link in sight. If you're expecting to play St Andrews, don't come. It's Australia's outback. It's, it's, it's got all the bits and pieces that belong to Australia. There's the emus and the kangaroos and the snakes and, and all the stuff that's Australian is here. This is what you come for. And this is what the international tourists come for. The Outback Golf Course that's drawing tourists for a very Australian game. That story is coming up. First today, we're headed to far north Queensland and a tiny town that's barely a dot on the map. A chance stop-off in this one pub town led a father and daughter to a graveyard mystery that sparked a historical quest and reunited a family. We're here in Almaden because a couple of years ago my dad and I had a little adventure on the Savannah Lander train. We stayed the night in Almaden and we were looking for something to do, so we came here to the uh, dead-hearted town. Almaden is a tiny town in far north Queensland, about 170 kilometres southwest of Cairns. It has a pub, a caravan park, a train station and a historic cemetery. Two years ago, after stopping here on their train journey, Marion Laurie and her father Don have returned. Their initial visit to the local cemetery set them on a quest to honour the memory of a young woman who was buried there more than a century ago. We saw a gravestone, a headstone that said something to the effect of this, this young woman who died over 100 years ago at the age of 25 would never be forgotten as long as her grave marked the spot by that white blossom tree. So we looked at each other and went, where's, where's the tree? And there wasn't a white blossom tree and we felt like she'd been forgotten and we wanted her to be remembered. And for all of those people uh, who've passed in some strange way, in a strange place, which she was among strangers, cared for here, died here, uh, and the town turned out to her, cemetery, uh, to her funeral without it really even knowing her. Hello, I'm Phil Prandell. I've come here to Alma Den, where Marion and her dad are ensuring that that young woman, Nellie Ryan, is remembered. Marion says she and her dad started digging into Nellie's story after seeing the headstone. So Dad did some research with the uh, Historical Society and discovered that she was a domestic. She lived in Georgetown, though she came from Toowoomba. She'd been to hospital in Townsville with some kind of lung condition. And uh, she was on her way back, back home to Georgetown when she took ill. Uh, the train didn't run here then. I think she must have been in some kind of coach. We're not really sure. Uh, but she got off here and... Uh, sheltered at the pub where the the proprietor at the time cared for her. Uh, unfortunately, she died and and was buried here. What happened after that? What happened at her funeral? So the, the town gathered around. Uh, they'd cared for her in her last days and they, they cared for her at her funeral, even though they didn't know her. 
Tell me about the little note that's inscribed on her gravestone. It says something like, uh, from us you have flown, never forgotten you will be as long as your grave marks the spot by that white blossomed tree. And you discovered there were no white blossom trees, so you did a little bit more research. And what did you discover then? Well, our research at this stage involved getting back on the Savannah Lander, going to Mount Surprise, walking down the main street and going, wow, look at that beautiful white blossomed tree. What is it? What is the white blossom tree? It's a native bohinia. It's a Lysophyllum hookeri. Beautiful white blossoms. They're like orchids and they have a sort of red uh, stamen. We're here today to, to plant some of those trees in her memory. And a lot of people would be saying, oh, you must be a distant relative. You're not at all, are you? No, not at all. Uh, and it's something that, you know, we've, you kind of travel around maybe your backyard, maybe the world, and you, you connect with people that you may have nothing to do with, but it doesn't mean you don't care. And we're planting five trees today. Where are they being planted and why? So we have one here at the cemetery. We have one at Tamarin Gardens Van Park. The one at the Van Park uh, is because they're kind of bringing it back to life as well with lots of beautiful native plantings there, so it kind of fits. Uh, one at the railway station because the Savannah Land is such a keen part of uh, the story. And one at the pub. So even though it's not the same hotel as the one where Nellie died, it's the local hotel. And what are you hoping to achieve by planting these trees? Because I know there's a little bit of a, a plaque that goes with them. It's just in memory of Nellie. And I suppose you could say Nellie is the figurehead of being in memory of people who care for other people, outback hospitality. It's that, that spirit of community. Marion's dad, Don Laurie, helped identify the white blossom tree referenced on Nellie Ryan's grave that was missing from Alma Den. I, I belong to the Society for Growing Australian Plants and... and we have records of all sorts of things like that, but we recognised this one in the main street, collected some seeds, propagated them, and we, here we are, we've got five trees, to, five trees to plant and eight little tiny ones to give to any relatives. Once they've um, grown, what are they going to look like? Yes, at this time of year, we should be able to see them somewhere if you look around. Uh, that they have distinctive red leaves in the in the winter time, and then they put the big white flowers out with red stamens. They're quite distinctive. Uh, I, I've been told by the locals that they, uh, the graziers thought that they suppressed grass, so they cut them all out. Del Childs is a local historian who also happens to be a distant relative of Nellie Ryan. Well, I have been a family history tragic, I call myself, for many years, and uh, I knew that I had Ryan relatives. I knew that there was a Ryan headstone here, but I didn't know all of the story until I heard about Don and his trip out here, and, uh, and so it went from there, and it was only when I saw on social media that they were looking for Ryan relatives that I put my hand up and got in touch. Nellie is the sister of my great-grandmother. Yes, my great-grandmother was Margaret Christina Ryan and Nellie was her younger sister. And what do you know about Nellie? Um, I found out quite a bit, actually, um, that she was born on the Darling Downs and she and her family came up here over many months, I would think, and uh, they started off in Normanton. Then uh, I think she was in Georgetown at the time she fell ill. Um, she actually lost her mother um, to childbirth uh, when... Nellie was 10, so I imagine she would have had to have looked after her brothers and sisters. 
It's, uh, it's been a wonderful journey of learning just about Nellie's life and today meeting some of my Ryan relatives. Even though she didn't have children and she, she wasn't married and didn't have children, but she had five brothers and sisters and I think there's a few hundred descendants all up. And how does it feel um, about the, the whole tree planting exercise in memory of your distant relative? Look, I just think it's a wonderful gesture. You know, we've got so many bad stories and uh, and difficult situations in the world at the moment. And this is such a wonderful story. And uh, I just give full credit to Don and his family for following it through. So my name's Therese and we're Team TNT. It's my hubby Troy. <laughs> Today we're cooking pumpkin soup. We've got porcupines with seasonal greens that I've grown from my garden, so lots of home produce for us. Even pumpkins are ours. Therese Palmer and her husband Troy are taking part in a cooking competition with a bit of a difference. They're preparing all of this food in big cast iron pots, known as camp ovens, placed on top of hot coals. We've got some bread in the oven that is almost cooked, if you want to have a look at that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, that's our bread. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah, so this is a garlic bread that's going with the meatballs. It's pretty cooked. So how hard is it to, to cook bread in a camp oven? It's not really hard as such. So these ones over here is where I rose. These ones here just warming from the the summer sun. Yeah. I've yeah just proofed them in there and then I've transferred it over into the um, the hot camp oven to cook them which they only took about 20 minutes to cook. Um, our other camp oven we've got the pumpkin soup started if you want to have a yes. squizzy at the soup. So that's our soup starting. So we've roasted the pumpkins and now we've just added the onions and garlic to simmer down. Then we'll add some uh, magic ingredients later on. <laughs> Hello, I'm Inga Stunzner. I'm here in the tiny central Queensland town of Comet, a three-hour drive west of Rockhampton, where a camp oven cooking competition is being held. Traditional camp oven cooking is undergoing a resurgence in popularity, but Therese and Troy have been enjoying camp oven food for decades. Uh, we've been cooking camp ovens for a good 20 years. What's um, attracted you to it? I think it's just the morale. We all love food. <laughs> you can cook it at home, you can cook it in a camp oven pretty much. And is this yeah. the first time that you've entered a competition? This is our third competition. So we entered a competition up in Charters Towers. Didn't do so good, but that was our first ever team sort of event, you know, <laughs> working with my husband. I think I stressed out more. <laughs> And then we went down to Milmerin last year with friends of ours and we came second place. So it was pretty exciting. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so we've actually entered in this year's uh, Milmerin competition. It's all about Christmas, so it's a bit of a challenge. Right, oh, it looks amazing. And so you've got three camp or four camp ovens and another two. Is that the, the skill, like, well, half of it is getting the right camp oven? Or? Not 
necessarily. We've got a cheaper sort of camp oven here to, you know, relics that are, you know, older than my grandparents. But we've also got these ones here, which are Baduri camp ovens. They're a spun steel. They're a lot quicker at cooking. So we cook more of our breads and desserts in these because they, they cook quicker and you can take the heat out of it quicker. Whereas a cast oven holds their heat for longer. The Australian Camp Oven Festival has been running since 1999 at Mill just over 200 kilometres west of Brisbane. Katrina Grunden has been involved since the beginning, first as a competitor and now as an event coordinator. She says camp oven cooking is luring people from all backgrounds and last year the festival attracted more than 10,000 people. I think it really comes down to the simplicity of it. The fact that you can cook while sitting around talking with mates, especially these days, just we're always so busy and, you know, you put something in a camp oven and you can't hurry it. You, well, if you do, you end up ruining it. And so you just have to settle down and, and let it take its time. And that's a good thing. Katrina says people are also becoming more creative because our food knowledge has changed. What was just a beef stew now, you know, you might turn into a, a ragu. And probably food is more plentiful now too. Once upon a time when you were travelling with a camp oven, you only took flour and you had water so you could make a really basic damper. But now we like to throw in all sorts of things. Adding to this popularity is the fact you can do it in your backyard. You know, you can cook a, a camp oven on a fire pit. You can use heat beads. So, you know, you don't need to have a wood fire even. If you're, a, you know, a beginner cook in an urban area, you think, I'm just going to give this a shot. What, what's a, a good recipe to start with? A lot of people always go for a damper. It is a simple recipe, but it's the cooking of a damper is a bit more technical because you have your oven too hot, too cold, it can be burnt and not cooked through and that sort of thing. I actually think a, a stew is a really good starting point because you can sort of put it in and forget about it almost for a few hours and you get a really good result from it. That was Katrina Grunden of the Australian Camp Oven Festival. She was speaking to reporter Inga Stunzner. Before that, Phil Brandell took us to Almaden in far north Queensland, where Nellie Ryan is being remembered more than 100 years after she died at the age of just 25. You can see more on both of those stories on the ABC RN homepage. Just look for A Big Country under programs. I'm Clint Jasper, with you for A Big Country. Still to come, the young brothers that are bottling juice to turn fallen oranges into a community fundraiser, and the game of golf that's about much more than just hitting a ball with a stick. If you're expecting to play St Andrews, don't come. It's Australia's outback. It's, it's, it's got all the bits and pieces that belong to Australia. There's the emus and the kangaroos and the snakes and, and all the stuff that's Australian is here. This is what you come for. And this is what the international tourists come for. And we've had a lot of people playing Chasing the Sun from all over the world come here just to play the tournament, just to experience that Australiana. So it's an absolutely brilliant um, Australian golfing attraction.
The golfing attraction that Alf Caputo is describing is far from your typical manicured greens. Alf is the manager of the Nullarbor Golf Links, the world's longest course that snakes along Australia's Nullarbor Plains. The idea for this unusual course was cooked up about 20 years ago as a way to encourage tourists to slow down as they travelled the flat Nullarbor Road along the Great Australian Bight between remote parts of South Australia and southern Western Australia. Nullarbor Links started in about 2002, began um, over dinner with a fellow called Bob Bongiorno at the Belladoni Roadhouse. After a couple of bottles of wine, he told me about building this course and slowing people down uh, for a number of reasons. One of the reasons was, of course, to uh, economic value to the roadhouses. The other was also a safety aspect of slowing down and less accident, which, is, which has happened. Right around the world there's been reaction to this golf course, immense reaction. Our website gets 2,700 visits a week from all over the world. Amazing the amount of response that our website gets. And is it the longest golf course in the world? Without a doubt. 1,365 kilometres and every bit of it is a brilliant drive. Hello, I'm Jodie Hamilton and I'm catching up with some of the competitors taking part in the annual Chasing the Sun Nullarbor Golf Links Tournament, which celebrates the uniqueness of the course, where hazards include crows, kangaroos and wombat holes. Mark Donkin and husband Eric were course caretakers for the first 11 years and they haven't missed a tournament. Well, the good shot went down here, but then it hit a rock and went left. Way up in the air and went left. I don't think we were expecting it to be quite as intimidating, quite as primitive as it was. Um, as it's progressed more, we've cribbed a bit every time you come out to do the maintenance. You crib a bit more and crib a bit more. So now it's nearly like Royal Melbourne now. <laughs> no. If you're a golfer and you go out there expecting to get a score, forget about it. If you're a non-golfer, they have a lot of fun. The rough is very rough. You don't want to go in the rough because the rough is like knee high, grass and bushes and shrubs. Go to like Nundru has got lots of rocks. So the ball comes down and you think, oh yeah, that's a good shot. And then it hits a rock and it goes off. And no, it's not a good shot. Nullarbor's got lots of wombat holes on the course and in the rough, so usually if you go in the rough at Nullarbor, you just hit another ball. You don't even go look for it. <laughs> and the crow is at Nullarbor usually, but we were lucky yesterday, we didn't see him, but the people before us had a crow. The crows have a reputation for stealing balls. It was on the green, and great shot! Now came the crow and took the ball. He must have a thousand balls, he must have a stack I reckon in a hollow tree this time, or down a wombat hole. Playing the Nullarbor golf links is a bucket list item for a lot of travellers. Over 20,000 have played the course. That is, of course, the people that we know that actually pay. Now, there's a lot more people there. Um, our two shop fronts, which are the Sejuna Visitor Centre and the Kalgoorlie Visitor Centre, and Norseman, of course, they tell us that there's so many more people that play it but don't pay. So they don't purchase a scorecard. They just play three or four holes and happy with that. And that's fine. 
The golf course has made the Nullarbor a destination. People actually come here to play the course. Whereas before, people would jump on the Air Highway in Sejuna and get off at Norseman and wouldn't stop. This has been absolutely brilliant for the Nullarbor. <laughs> it's about the fun. It's about the wine tasting and it's about digging for a gold nugget and it's about having a little sing-along in the evenings with a few wines. Yeah, no, the golf's definitely secondary. <laughs> as long as you don't want to score good, this is a great competition. But, I mean, I've won it four times, but I bet I never got under 100 in any of them. Don't expect to score. <laughs> and bring a couple of balls and look don't look for your ball just drop another one because it's a fun thing it's all about stopping hopping out having a stretch going for a walk okay hit a couple of balls but yeah it really is not about the golf it's about stopping and yeah not driving tired and stuff like that oh, i'm doing all right i'm having a great time Excellent. the golf's not good but i didn't come for the golf i'm too old to come for the golf I'm past that. How old are you? 79. <laughs> it's not, yeah, it's not bad, the golf. When his family moved to a new home on a rural property in central west New South Wales, it sparked an idea for a business venture for 12-year-old Jack Fitzgerald. We were driving back from home from parks and, and like, there was, like, I saw a heap of oranges on the ground and I was like, we could make orange juice out of that. Hello, I'm Hamish Cole. I'm visiting the Fitzgerald family on their orchard farm near the small country town of Condoblin. The 700 orange trees on this property had not been given much love by the previous owner, but the family have been tending to the trees and getting them back in shape, as Jack's nine-year-old brother Joe and his mum Elaine explain. And you prune some trees with Dad? Most of the time, me and Dad been pruning the orange trees to help them. So they grow and they grow nice big big oranges. It's been good for people to say that I've did a I've did a good job with my orange juice and and I'm only I'm only little. Lots of people say, oh that's more and more work, but it's happy, like it's nice, it's peaceful, it's relaxing. Then have all the dogs out and it's just nice. When they first arrived at the orchard, the Fitzgeralds had no plans to restore the farm after it had been left run down. But the boy's dad, Ben, says that soon changed. A big learning experience. I mean, I'm a baker and Elaine's a, a nurse, so we didn't really know much about oranges coming in here. So we just sort of reached out to some help from Dan and Griffith there with elders and they sent up an agronomist for us and gave us a been stepping us through step by step, helping us get the orchard up to speed. It was pretty badly run down and needed a lot of love, but we're just getting there one day at a time. We just thought we were gonna do what the previous owners did and just put them in a bag out the front or take them down to a market and get rid of them. But Jack sort of swung by the idea around the juice and the more we looked into it, the more we thought, oh, it could be a, a good addition to the shop. So off we went and we brought a juicer and put some oranges through it and put it in a bottle and it sort of took off. 
and the kids been sort of driving it. They now have big plans for their Jack and Joe's orange juice. Like move it to the city and out to like small country towns like Condo and Forbes and Park. Spread it all over Australia so people, so people know. The boys are also doing their bit for the Condoblin community with the money they make, donating it all to local sporting clubs. So with my bits of money I get, I always sponsor my teams, like cricket team and um, footy. footy. We love to sponsor them because if we don't sponsor them, well, they won't be here anymore. The orange juice has been a big hit in the local community. The idea is to be able to just have something that's niche for Condoblin and mm. just another thing to for a small country town like this. All them little bits and pieces add up to making a good experience for people mm. that come into town and whether they go away and go, oh, geez, the supermarket was nice there or, geez, the bakery was nice or, oh, that bottle of juice, it was a cracker, you know? They're the things that bring people back into our communities out here and if you don't try and put forward them sort of things, I guess there's, there's no reason for anyone to come out here and visit us, you know? Our, our country regions have a lot to offer but it's only as much as what the local residents are willing to input themselves. Ben Fitzgerald and his family spoke to reporter Hamish Cole about how his son Jack's idea to make orange juice with fruit from their farm orchard took off. You can see more on that story and all of the stories on today's program. Find us online at the ABC RN homepage. You'll see a big country under programs. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.